This is episode 17 of the Wealth and Law podcast. I'm Brent Nelson. And as usual, I'm joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, what's going on? Not too much tonight, Brent. How about you? I mean, it's quiet now. It's quiet yeah. now. All day long, it was, it was anything but quiet at my house. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, you know, because everybody's at home, we're not doing summer camps. And we actually are realizing, we're like looking back over the schedule and like, you know, doing this whole living together at home during the summer thing, realizing like the schedule that we had come up with, the real schedule that got canceled would have been insane. <laughs> would have been, I don't know what we were thinking. We would have been driving everywhere at the same time every night of the week. So this is like the complete opposite. Now we're going nowhere at any time on any day of the week, but we're all just at home. It's very <laughs> weird. And which do you prefer? That's the question. Mm, I, I think I think COVID-19 saved us from ourselves. <laughs> if I'm being honest, I think that's what happened. Gonna take the nice relax, looser schedule. Yeah, just go. Yeah, it's, it's easy to over schedule and we're really guilty of that sometimes. So this, this has been a good exercise in like looking at your schedule and figuring out, okay, what on here really matters? And then what on here is just total fluff. <laughs> and not needed at all. And we found a lot of fluff. So that's been, yeah. it's been good for us. What, I, what I'm curious about is like, when we go back, are we just going to revert back to where we were? Or are we going to like keep cutting out all the fluff and continue to sort of do it the way we're doing it now? That I'm not so sure. I don't know if we'll be able to resist the temptation once the dates are over. Right, right. Yeah, you're used to one thing, but old ways can come back, definitely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not easy. <laughs> we're making it though we're soldiering on you can do this you can do this <laughs> thank you Everybody. i appreciate that you're, you're the best <laughs> well i thought that we would talk about looking at investment management that's probably a horrible way to tee this up <laughs> uh, investment management from, but from the perspective of somebody who's actually in the industry and so uh to do that i didn't think there was anybody better than my dear friend uh, Ken Morris. Ken is a wealth advisor at Merrill Lynch. He is the regional director of their La Jolla office. I probably butchered that. You can correct me, Ken, but uh, uh, of their La Jolla office in, in beautiful San Diego, La Jolla, California. And he's some sort of vice president with them, which I'm sure he'll tell us what that is. Ken is also a very smart person and an excellently credentialed professional. He's a CFA. He is a C CFP and he is also an MBA. So he's done a lot of school and he has studied this stuff and he continues to study it. And I know for him it's very much a, a labor of love and a passion project. So I'm really excited to have you with us. Thanks, Ken. for joining. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Brent. And I, I kind of feel jealous of your radio voice. Um, I'll try to live up to it, but <laughs> you're perfect for podcasts. <laughs> I've got the face of a radio person. Yeah. <laughs> I say the same thing <laughs> about you. <laughs> well, do you want to, do you need to correct the record on uh, any of your background information there? You know, it was pretty close. Um, so I'm a chartered financial analyst, charter holder, certified financial planner, and I have my MBA from the university of Arizona. So really all that means is there's a lot of math behind investment management and financial planning. And I know how to do the math. It's, it's very interesting how it all boils down to some basic calculations. 
And if you know how to apply those techniques and those learnings well, you can do really well for your clients and get them into great positions. I'm the resident director of the University Town Center office, which you're right, is basically in La Jolla. Um, we do have a La Jolla office too. I'm right next door. And I'm also first vice president at Merrill Lynch. So thanks for having me again. Nice. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. How are you guys doing in all of the uh, stay at home? Well, I guess California is sort of starting to open up just a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, we, we've been kind of a measured reopening right now. They just started opening up gyms on Friday. I think people are excited about that. They're opening up some public parks again. So more and more so with restrictions, people are allowed to kind of go outside. But California really took it seriously. Um, they were a more aggressive early lockdown state. And I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but it seems like for the meantime, we've largely sidestepped the actual virus, which is nice for people who have uh, friends, family at risk. Yeah, it's good. Are you, are you guys handling summer and no school? You know, I was actually complaining today because I walked out of the office and it was, it was 5.30 or something and uh, it was 90 degrees. And I don't think I felt 90 degrees in San Diego for, I don't know, eight months, nine months. We usually get about a week that way. So it's a great beach day. I didn't make it to the beach, but my family did. But it's very hot here. Nothing compared to the 105 when I used to live in Tucson and what you guys are experiencing. But definitely a heat wave coming through here and, uh, and hitting southern Arizona too. Yeah, we uh, look, we feel so sorry for you. You know, you know that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I got to Coronado, you know, where I live. And um, I'm telling you, it was, it was 80 and that was hot too. But uh, <laughs> it's, oh, man, it's 80. beautiful. You get up and it's like 68 degrees and usually it caps out at 75. Um, and that's the life. <laughs> yeah, only in San Diego. That's right. Well, guys, what I'm thinking that we can talk about, Ken, since we've got you on here and since you are definitely the guru on this, like Brent was saying, just kind of investment management. And I think a lot of people get it kind of confused. They think investment management and financial planning are one and the same. And they're actually two different things. There's two separate camps on that. So I thought we can kind of explain that. What is all of that? What are the, you know, uh, the differences? And then along with that, with active and passive investment managing, there are two different things there. Again, another two separate different camps. So Ken, if you know, you could explain that a little bit. And then we could just talk about how someone can pick an investment advisor. You know, what, what should people look for? What should the discussions they be having? I mean, this is a relevant topic for everyone, especially right now in COVID-19 where you know, you could be looking at your retirement accounts and thinking, oh goodness, maybe I need to do a little bit more planning, a little bit more investing. So how does that sound um, as a good little outline for tonight, guys? Sounds great to me. Sounds like a lot to unpack in one sentence. So I'll try my best. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like me to start or if you, if you actually wanted to focus on one particular topic, I'll, I'll kind of give you my two cents. I'll bet all they're worth. Well, let's look at first, uh, just like active and passive investment management. So um, I think a lot of people just think investment management might just be looped into one big thing. You know, maybe yeah. I give someone all my, my stuff and they take care of it for me. But there are some differences in kind of how active you are, whether or not you want to beat the market or when, whether you want to take more of a backseat role. So Ken, can you just kind of explain what those two different things are? Yeah, so I guess I'll start with, as you mentioned, the active versus passive debate, which has been raging for, uh, I would really say since I started the industry in 2005, John Bogle really kind of led the charge with that by creating an early index fund. You have the SPY, which is a spiders um, fund, kind of sponsored by the, the S&P index. And indexing has grown steadily 
pretty much every single year, really accelerating after the Great Recession in 2008. So I believe his last year was kind of a, a benchmark for this debate and for this transition of asset management, where for the first time, most of the ways they measure how much of the investments or our financial assets are in index funds compared to actively managed reached an inversion point. And basically more than 50% of assets, capital markets assets, financial assets are now managed passively in indexes. And quite frankly, there's a reason why. With my training as a CFA charter holder, a CFP, MBA, as a finance accounting undergrad, I work for Deloitte & Touche. I have a massive amount of experience in researching active managers, their propensity for success, and their ability to have persistence. Can they continue to be successful? And quite honestly, um, I search every year for active managers that can outperform and have a history of it and hopefully can continue. And they're few and far between. This is not me relying on other people's research. I looked at Vanguard's research. I've looked at iShares research, two of the largest index fund providers. And then I did it myself when I went to Morningstar.com and did one of their premium screeners and said, how many large cap value managers outperform their index? How many small cap growth managers? How many international managers? And the fact is, once you get through the screening criteria of how many have done it over 10 years, five years, and how many of those managers are still with that fund and company, you basically are left with a handful. And then the worst part is those handful, maybe they're 5% of the population, 2% of the, that population, that's all pre-tax returns. If you actually look at their after-tax returns, it's not even close. So it's not that financial advisors have, quote unquote, gone to the dark side and, and there's some big colluding event to push people into index funds. It's that they're extremely brutally efficient. They're low tax, low expense ratio. So if you can't beat them, join them. And more and more financial advisors have looked at that research, seen the research, and time and time again, the verdict comes in active is almost extremely hard to impossible at beating those passive indexes over long periods of time. And maybe just to, to take one or two steps back for, for anybody listening who, who doesn't understand the distinction you're making between active and passive, do you want to just frame those at least as definitions? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest way to think about it is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. That's one of the oldest benchmarks, although to be honest, mainly only retail investors still quote it and use it and, and pay attention to it. Those are the 30 stocks selected by committee in the United States, one of the first indexes ever. And those 30 stocks are supposed to replicate kind of the US economy. So those 30 stocks, if you just invest in those exact 30 stocks, you'll track that index. Now there's funds or index funds that actually do that for you. So you don't have to own the 30 stocks. You can buy one index fund and it'll do it for you. With the same concept, there's the S&P 500, which are the 500 largest US companies, a better indication of the US market, or the Russell 1000, another index fund provider, and they're the top 1,000 um, stocks in the United States. And you can buy one index that replicates those 1,000 stocks or 500 stocks or 30 stocks respectively, and it will literally just move up and down with that index, pretty much with minimal drag, mainly just the expense ratio of the fund, which for index funds are so low now, some are at 0%, some are at 0.03%, even the more, I'll say, esoteric indexes are maybe at 0.08. You, of course, can find index funds that charge a lot more, 
but that's really not what we're talking about when we talk about passive indexes. We're not going into the corners of the market or fundamentally weighted indexes or other things. Those will have higher expenses. I'm really talking, when I talk about passive indexing, replicating these large indexes that represent large swaths of the market. Now, active, on the other hand, you have a portfolio manager like me, a CFA charter holder, typically, and they say, look, there's 500 stocks in the S&P 500. I want to beat that. I think I can select 50 or 100 or 10 stocks, and those selections are going to outperform that, that passive index of just matching the market return. And that's what I say those managers who really came to light and were all-star fund managers from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they have struggled mightily to outperform those indexes. But they're more fun. You know, I'll say it's more sexy, right? People get to talk about when they outperformed. It's the same, same cocktail conversation you get at parties where people say, hey, I've had Tesla for the last five years and I'm a genius, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, they don't tell you about the 10 selections they made that, that bombed or disappeared or they lost money on because it's fun to talk about your winners and, and appear to be a good selector. But just like the, um, the there's a, a theory or it's a study shown that if you ask a class of college students, how many of you believe you're above average drivers? By definition, only half the class can be above average and about 75% of them will raise their hand. Right. It's this concept with individual investors, with uh, people in my profession, you say, how many of you think you can outperform the market? And, and more than half will raise their hand. But by definition, it's a closed system. So if there's a winner, there's a loser. And so, it's, so only half the people who are playing in that active game can be winners. Half by definition have to be losers. And John Bogle proved that really eloquently in, in several of his books that he wrote. John Bogle, once again, is the founder of Vanguard. Yeah. And, and I guess uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the measurements that you're really looking at are, are not necessarily quarter to quarter or year, you know, one year. You're looking at a over a long period of time. Statistically speaking, do the passive funds do better than the active managers? Because you, know, you can have an active manager who just hits a home run one year. Right. But as you're saying, like, it's the ability to replicate that year over year over year, where when you kind of average it out over a long period of time, which one actually did better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we really are looking for persistence and consistency of long-term outperformance to take a risk and move away from the index. The problem is, is maybe you find managers out there who do outperform over seven and 10 years. They're a rare minority, but think about Warren Buffett, for example. He's done it for a very long period of time in aggregate returns. I'll go back to that in a second because I think you'll, I'll share something that's shocking to most people when I mention it because I'm a huge Warren Buffett fan. But what you find is the longer time period you have, the less people have shown that propensity to continue to outperform. And quite frankly, what happens is there's a huge survivorship bias, which simply means that when funds underperform, they're usually swallowed up by other outperforming funds within the same fund company. And so they, their records disappear. So when you actually take into consideration and account the funds that no longer exist because they were closed due to underperformance, the numbers and statistics are even worse. You're basically taking 1,500 large cap value funds, and once you apply those metrics, have they done it on a 10-year, five-year? Is the manager still there? I think maybe five to 10 come out the other side. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, the Warren Buffett example is really interesting to me because you're absolutely, you're right. Like to me, in my mind, maybe incorrectly, I don't know, but in my mind, like he's the, the quintessential active investor. And yet when he gives quote unquote investment advice, it's almost never to do what he's done, at least for people like us. Yeah, that's right. And he publishes his annual returns each year in his annual report. And if you ever want a great read and learn more about this, I'd say that's a great starting point. Go back to his 1965 Berkshire Hathaway letter and start reading. And it is a, it's basically a master's of finance um, in a very easy to read format. But here's what I was going to mention about Warren Buffett. I love the guy. I have a man crush on him. But the fact is Berkshire Hathaway has not outperformed the S&P 500 over the last five, 10, and 15 year periods. And people still flock to it as the panacea, the cure-all, or that person who can still do it. Granted, he has provided performance of roughly 20% annually since he took over the company in 1965. In fact, I have his partnership letters from 10 years before that, and he had even better performance then. But the outperformance of 20% annually since then um, really came from a period of superb outperformance in the first half of that control and ownership of Berkshire Hathaway. At that time, he was doing roughly annually 40% annual returns, okay? Most recently, he has dragged and lagged the market, but you have to kind of qualify that. Even what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger will say in those meetings is that what got them rich is not how they're staying rich. They're more worried now about not losing sleep and not losing the empire. They say not going back to go on the monopoly board than taking extraordinary risks with their investors' money. They've shot the moon. Now they're investing in things that give decent returns, but more steady, like capital-intensive businesses such as Burlington Northern Santa Fe, Mid-American Energy, um, which is a utility company, which costs, which there's massive capital inflows into those types of companies and, and needs to produce that infrastructure to deliver power, um, et cetera. And those just cannot produce those 20 to 40% rates of return. Basically, they're too big now. And they, they sit on about $150 billion of cash. His selections are still smart and timely. Um, he's more of a reactive timing investor, though, not trying to predict the market. But um, no one can outperform when, you sit on, when you're sitting on $150 billion of cash in a $500 billion company. It's just you're, you're trying to, to turn the, uh, the cruise liner. It takes a long time. Right. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. It's actually somewhat... It's somewhat similar to high net worth clients that we have, or even ultra high net worth clients that we have. To the extent that money is not locked into family businesses, and for almost every ultra high net worth client, like there's a family business somewhere in there, but money that's not locked up in the family business, like they're not trying to shoot the moon with that money. Right. They're trying to conserve the money or preserve the money. They don't need to make 20, 30%. They've already made their money. They want to not lose it now. And that at least that seems to be the mentality that I see. I don't know if you see it. you're more on the investment side than the legal side. So, you know, I don't know if it translates into the conversations with the investment advisor or not, but that's sort of the, the sense that I get from the legal advisor side of things. It, it absolutely does. And it goes back to that saying, what got them rich will not keep them rich. And we see a lot of wealth created from real estate developers, um, real estate investors, business owners, whether they're executives and they were in a successful business and had, had a lot of concentrated stock that they then diversify away from, 
or they had a private family business that they grew for their life, maybe multi-generational and eventually had an exit. And honestly, you're absolutely right, Brent. They come to us because they do not want to go back to those backbreaking days and they do not want to give up what they've accomplished and earned and built over their entire life. So most often their guidance to us is we want capital preservation with a reasonable rate of return. And when you actually kind of nail them down and say, what is a reasonable rate of return for you? They'll come back and say something in the five to 7% range, which historically has been consistent with a moderate portfolio, roughly 60% stock, 40% bond. That's probably the most common allocation we see for endowments, institutions, and long-term wealth. And then I'm assuming you're then trying to build into that efficiencies like you were talking about with index funds having very low expense ratios or the amount of fees that you have to pay every year, you know, very low expense ratios versus actively managed funds where with a very low uh, expense ratio, the fund just operates at a, a different level of efficiency because the growth is not being eroded by those fees every year. That's right. Um, and I, I want to be clear here too, that a lot of times when I'm meeting with prospective clients or people who are kind of unfamiliar with passive investing or our investment strategy, which we're not 100% passive, we're about 70% passive in our portfolios by choice. I'm really agnostic on it. That's just where it falls. And I'll get into that in a second. But when we say we use a lot of index funds, people generically think, we put 100% of their stock exposure in the S&P 500. And they say, why, why shouldn't I just do that on my own? Why pay you anything? And that's not the case. What we're really saying is we're using passive index funds that replicate a part of the market to gain the proper exposure that we want to that segment. So within a, a diversified portfolio, you're going to diversify with amongst large companies, small companies, value companies, which are your more mature cash flowing companies. Think about like Disney and Coca-Cola, you know, those stable, stable, mature companies. And then growth companies, that's more of your Facebooks, your Amazons, your Googles, kind of the new economy companies you think of. Then of course you have international emerging markets. And most people who are at my level and doing this the correct way, um, in my opinion, is they're using what's called modern portfolio theory. And that's a very fancy term for saying, we kind of know the historic risk or volatility or choppiness of that portfolio. We kind of know the historic returns it generates. We're gonna make some estimations about the future based on valuations and different, different influences on those asset classes. But there is an optimal combination of small, large, international value growth, et cetera, and we are allocating amongst those different parts of the market. Most of the time we are using index funds. So you'll see a portfolio of about say 12 to 15 positions that are index funds just for your stock side. Okay. Cause we want exposure to all those different categories in different ways. So we're not just generically putting money in the S and P 500. Now I'll kind of expound on that just a little bit further because then other people say, Oh, so you're basically just, matching the market, you know, and you're not trying to outperform or add any value, right? And the answer to that is there's actually some well-known empirically studied and statistical techniques where you can improve your odds of outperformance or even reducing just your own fee drag for hiring a Merrill Lynch or another investment advisor to be that overlay for financial planning and investment management. In fact, there were two gentlemen who won the Nobel Prize in Economics proving this. And basically what they found, and they called the Fama French four-factor model, they won the Nobel Prize for this, 
they found that if you overweight small companies, you overweight value companies compared to growth, you overweight, let's see, there's a momentum factor in there too, or high quality that you will actually provide higher risk adjusted returns than you would have just generically going to the S&P 500. So if someone said, Ken, I really am only going to hire if you outperform the S&P 500. First, I'll disclaim the heck out of that. Say, I think that's an extremely tall task. (laughs) Here's ways that you can put yourself over the long term in a better position than just generically putting money into the S&P 500. Overweight value companies, high quality companies, which are typically dividend growers, um, small companies. That right there will actually put you historically and historically with statistical and empirical backing in the best chance to outperform. But it doesn't happen on cue. It doesn't happen every day. It doesn't happen every month or quarter. These are over full market cycles, which a full market cycle can be seven to 10 years. And if you followed that exact formula I just mentioned over the last 10 years, you would have underperformed, right? Because what has been the best driver in growth in the US stock market for the last 10 years since the Great Recession? It's been large growth companies, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Salesforce, Microsoft, right? So that would have drastically underperformed. But history shows that over seven and 10 year periods, that happens. And that's why over the next 10 years, you probably have a better odds or better chance of outperforming by using those things. But we still have the clients after those 10 years. That's the question. Yeah. So it's really using, using index funds as a tool in the plan rather than as the plan itself, right? It's just a, it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not the puzzle. That's exactly right. And I think that, you know, Rachel kind of mentioned that earlier is what is the difference between investment management and financial planning? Are they one and the same? And no, they're not. In fact, I think our industry is in a huge transitionary period where you have the old school method of pay me 1% to manage your money and I'm going to outperform what you could do on your own or outperform the index, the S&P 500. And that's how people sold it. That was their value proposition. Well, a lot of studies were done to say, are financial advisors outperforming? Are active mutual fund fund managers outperforming? Are hedge funds outperforming their respective indexes on a risk-adjusted basis? And we found across that entire spectrum, including those expensive hedge funds, they're not. So for those people who are selling that and are still selling that to that day, to this day, it's been a rude awakening because they may have some legacy clients they worked with for 20 or 30 years, but it's very hard to win business nowadays with the next generation coming up with this education of it, don't try to beat the market buy a low cost index fund. Even our friend Warren Buff that we mentioned earlier says, don't do what I'm doing. Put your money in the S and P 500 and you'll be better off than trying to outperform. Cause if you don't know who the patsy is at the poker table, you're the patsy. And I guarantee that unless you're spending 16 hours a day on this stuff, you're the patsy. There's no way around it. This is, if you think this game is simple, you don't understand the game. So, Financial planning has actually evolved from that, where what we found, and Vanguard did this amazing study on it. I'll get to that in a second. But what we found is that financial planning adds so much more value than investment management ever has. Yes, you need to do investment management well and correctly. You need to use modern portfolio theory, low cost funds, keep the turnover low, keep expenses low, right? That's a given. You need to do that stuff, but not everyone does it. That's what you need to be doing to get, those, get the proper returns for the risk the client's taking. But really where you can really add value to clients and to these family offices and larger institutional investors is through the planning. 
And it's in partnership with estate planners like yourself and your firm. It's in partnership with great CPAs. Because if you can really understand what tax planning levers you can pull and estate planning levers you can pull, wow, that's where you're finding hundreds of thousands of dollars of savings in some of these larger situations. And so the transition has been to goals-based wealth management where you try to understand a client's goals and then you're using investment management, you're using those tax and estate planning strategies, you're using all these different financial planning techniques to create a plan and get them to stick to that plan through thick and thin. If you spend a lot of time on that plan up front, you're gonna get the behavioral reaction which gets the client to stick to the plan and gets them to an optimal structure. I mentioned the Vanguard study previously. There's a Vanguard study, it's called Advisors Alpha. So Vanguard, once again, founded by John Bogle, basically says you should not pay a nickel more than you have to for investment management. And from that standpoint, they created what's essentially a nonprofit company because the funds actually own the company within it. That's how they keep expenses low. So your true cost of the fund is the true cost to run it, right? They did this study and they found advisors can detract on investment management from total returns. But if they do it right, they're kind of getting what they should get. But where they're really adding value is by creating the financial plan, sticking to the plan, rebalancing when you don't want to. That was March. March 12th, <laughs> yeah, right. the S&P 500 fell 20% on the calendar year. We rebalanced $300 million over the next 10 days. Okay, $300 million of our portfolios, we rebalanced. We were early, right? It went down another 10% after that. We didn't care that we weren't at the exact bottom because you're never going to know when the bottom is. But statistically, it says that was a good time to rebalance. So it forces you to rebalance even when you don't want to. It forces you to diversify into the things that seem like they're never going to go up again. International has underperformed U.S. stocks for the last 10 years. Value has underperformed U.S. stocks for the last 10 years. And so people get into this safety pattern of, if I just put all my money in growth, Google, Facebook, I'm set. Tesla, Netflix, I like those products. I use those products. This is great. Same thing happened in 1997, 98, 99. What happened over the next 10 years? 2000 through 2008, really. Value outperformed growth. International outperformed U.S. They just constantly get you comfortable and then leadership switches. So that's what Vanguard found is an advisor can actually add 3% annually in value. And that's not just them making it up. They actually did the study on their own clients. They have advised clients. They have non-advised clients. They said, why are the non-advised underperforming or advised by 3%? It wasn't by better investment selection because even the non-advised were using a lot of Vanguard funds. It was from those other activities. And if you nail that down with the financial planning, that's where an advisor adds value. That's where you get away with saying, look, my fee is 1% or lower if they're larger accounts. And that's why I justify my existence. Before we got on this, this, this call, we were talking about indirect Roth IRA strategies. That's one little thing that everyone should be doing, either going directly into a Roth or an IRA or indirectly into a Roth IRA if you make too much money. And if you do that strategy, which is just putting $6,000 away above and beyond your employer plan if you have one, um, if you do that for 35 years, earn a 7% rate of return, and you increase those contributions as the government and the law allows, you'll end up with over a million dollars in that account tax-free. Because a Roth IRA is tax-free growth because you already pay taxes when you put it in. Those are the things your advisors should know and be should advising you on. 
Investment management is one of 12 financial planning topics good advisors consult on. It's a tool, as Brent said, to get to the plan, to finish the plan, to execute the plan. So can, can we talk about that a little bit, maybe from a client advisor, psych, psychological perspective of getting, n- number one, figuring out what's, what's the right plan for somebody, that particular person, and then getting people to buy into the plan in a way that then they want to keep doing it, even when things get kind of crazy like it did during March. Yeah, you know, as much as you preach and try to manage expectations and say, there will be a market correction. I don't know when it'll be. And that's honest. Anyone who tells you differently is absolutely lying to you, but it will come and you need to be prepared for this. We always do kind of a sensitivity analysis in regards to the investment management only. So we talk qualitatively about how they feel about being aggressive and conservative and what that means from a historic return standpoint. And we show them kind of its worst year. Then we actually lock down or, or narrow down their risk tolerance say they're a moderate investor. And I communicate that, hey, a moderate investor in 2008, their portfolio fell about 20%, okay? That was on the calendar year. It actually did worse than that in between. And this March correction, probably a little bit worse, maybe 25% or so, right? And it was very quick and very sudden. How would you feel about that? Are you okay if we put your million dollars of savings in the account you're bringing over to Merrill Lynch and our team? Are you okay if that happens tomorrow in the next three weeks? That's literally what happened. You have to be okay with that to have this moderate allocation or else it's too risky for you. And I think this is a really interesting time because we've had a very quick rebound. I think everyone needs to be cautious and careful about that rebound because once again, I'm in Coronado and I can see two, sometimes it's three empty cruise liners off the beach of Coronado right now. Uh, They have no passengers, no revenue. Uh Yet cruise line publicly traded companies right now they've rallied about 50% from their, their low. I don't know why. And then you'll get statistics like, hey, people are traveling again. Well, if you look at the TSA flow through numbers, how many people have gone through TSA pre-check or TSA um, uh, security lines at the airport? Yeah. Actual travelers went down 90% from last year to March and April when we were in the shutdown. It makes sense, right? They said, hey, travelers have doubled in the last few weeks, right? We're still 80% down from last year. There's tens of thousands of planes parked in the deserts of Arizona, Marana, the Boneyard, and across the country. Yeah, your flights seem full because they, they can't make a profit unless they're above 70% occupied or at capacity. There's some major damage out there. So I'm not predicting that it's going to go up or down. I don't play that game, and you shouldn't either because all that's important is a long-term plan. But be careful with this market. Okay. So to get adherence to that, I would say the most important thing is you actually focus on the plan. You show them what that portfolio is going to do that supports it, that they're okay with it, they're comfortable with. And then what happens is their mindset most of the time changes. And it changes to, I don't care about what's happening this month or this quarter. I'm 40 years old. I'm 50 years old. I'm 30 years old or whatever. And my goal is to retire when I'm 50, 60, 70, whatever that goal is. They start focusing on that long-term goal. And they realize that this quarter, this month doesn't happen. What matters is they stick to the plan. They keep on contributing at the level that we built into the plan. And every dollar but their emergency savings goes towards that long-term plan. Because if you you start going away from that, you get trapped into having too much cash or being out of the market. And we have a study. It's a great chart. I'd love to send it to your listeners if, if we can get it to them. But it basically shows that if you miss the best four years, 
so 48 months of the market's return from 1926 to 2019, you got no better returns than treasury bills. So the big up moves come on random days, random months, and if you're not there for them, you will not get the historic stock market returns. And you can't predict them. You can't. It's in the short term, it basically is a random walk. In the long term, Merrill did this great study and it's and I've I've seen it replicated other places, but it's pretty amazing. They actually found that there's there's no good quantitative or, or fundamental metric, no CFA formula that does a great job of predicting short-term market performance. The best indicator is actually momentum. What tends to go up keeps on going up in the short run. What tends to go down keeps on going down. And that works for a period of years until, until uh, so I was liking it to picking up nickels in front of the steamroller, like, hey, Tesla went up, Tesla went up. Let's put our money in Tesla. And on the eighth year, it rips your arm off, right? I'm not saying <laughs> I use that just so people can kind of relate to a company. I have no opinion on Tesla positive or negative. Don't go out and buy it or sell it. I'm just trying to give you a real life example of, of companies that, you know, people tend to uh, gravitate towards because they love their products. Right. Right. Um, in the long term, though, there's an actual, I'm going to get a little wonky here. I apologize. There's an 88% R squared. That's regression analysis. It's a, a statistical tool that predicts the correlation or the future of things. And it basically found that over long periods of time, peaking at around nine and 10 years, great valuation metrics like price to operating cash flow, price divided by operating cash that a, a company develops, has a very, very strong fit and predictability of future performance over nine and 10 years. And basically that says, if you buy things cheap, you're gonna have great outperformance on the high side. If you buy them expensive over a long period of time, it'll be hard to make good performance. So it's basically saying that you can't have a short-term view. If you believe something is undervalued or overvalued, it's going to take you about nine to 10 years to figure out whether you're correct. But fundamentals are all that matter in the long run. Yeah. So it sounds like patience and having a sound plan are really the key. It's it. And half of it's that it's not our money. Trust me, we care about it. We stress about it. But it's not my money that I have an emotional attachment to. So Brent, if you are, if you're excited about the market or you're sad about the market, you know, it's the doldrums of March when everything's literally, we, we had, I think three days where the market fell 10% at various times. I'm the one that you call instead of going to your E-Trade terminal or other discount brokers terminal and push, start pushing sell frantically. Say, Ken, I, I can't take this. This is crazy. I, I, I don't know what to do. And I say, Brent, this doesn't matter. We talked about it. We planned about it. Remember that conversation we had at Prep and Pastry? I told you this was going to happen. And here it is. And I want you to remember this conversation at Prep and Pastry. It will happen. We're never going to be able to predict it. We can't react to it. At worst, we're going to rebalance into it. At best, if it gets really bad, I'm going to ask you to put more money into it. Because we have to think about it as stocks, which are just representation of great companies, we have to look at them as going on sale. I don't know about you, but I love to eat, um, I love to eat steak, right? So I go to the supermarket and ribeyes are on sale. I'm going to go and buy extra and put them in the freezer, right? But yep. the stock market, when it goes up, people want to buy more. When it goes down, they want to sell. Right. It's called the Veblen good. That's the actual economic term for it. You want to buy more when it's expensive and less when it's cheap. That's the exact opposite of what you should do. Right. And that it sounds to me like that's where 
the rebalancing comes in. That's where the rebalancing is important, where someone like very conscientious advisor will understand, okay, this is a good opportunity for us to do our rebalancing so we can take advantage of what's being handed to us. You know, we didn't know it was going to happen, but now it has happened. And so maybe we'll try and play our cards a little bit here and, and get something on the table. That's right. So think about this. So the market started at 100, went down to 80 and back to 100. If you didn't do anything, you'd, be, you'd make no money. You wouldn't lost, you wouldn't have gained. It went from start down into finish the same place, right? But if you just rebalanced and you got back to your target allocation when it was 20% down, maybe you didn't catch it exactly at the bottom. Maybe you went further down after that, right? But when it comes back, what will actually happen is you will have made money because you bought more when it was cheap. And then, of course, you do the same thing. It goes back up to par at 100. You sell those same positions you just gained. We've been doing that for, uh, we started reducing our stock exposure from our rebalancing activities in March about, I want to say it was about a month ago now. So the market was still down about around 9 to 8%. It's since come back to par. And we're, we're kind of actually looking even further at, should we rebalance again? You know, if we're targeting a 60-40 portfolio, that's 60% stock. 40% bond, and it's now back up to 65%, we're chopping off that 5% and getting us back to the target again. So it works both ways. And that discipline actually enhances adherence to the plan and gets you into a better situation. But a lot of times this game is psychological, and we are therapists to our clients. They call in, and we have to talk them down from the ledge. And that's one of the benefits and hardships of being an advisor is you take on all that stress for the client. Just think about if you're doing it yourself. Do you really want to tell your spouse that your portfolio just went down 40% or maybe more because you're taking a little, you're buying the hot, hot stocks of the day and the cocktail party stocks? That conversation never feels good. We'll take that heat for you because the fact is we can't prevent it. We can diversify. We can make sure it, it, it doesn't become a permanent situation or permanent losses. But sometimes just that ability to say, you know what, these are Ken's decisions and we need to evaluate Ken, you know, helps because then the stress and the concern is not directed at your partner. Yeah, that's really funny. That's, uh, it's somewhat similar for, for us. You know, sometimes I'll tell clients, all right, here's what you need to do. And they'll say, oh, well, you know, brother, sister, whomever, I don't think they're going to like that. And yeah. Say, it's fine. Just blame it on me. That's, that's right. Why, that's why you pay me. Just tell them I said it had to happen. Tell, tell them it's not your idea. It's my idea. I'll take the heat. I don't care. Like, that's my job. Be the foil, right? I'm yeah. the foil. Exactly. And I'm sure you get that all the time when you're hired to be a co-trustee or, you know, fiduciary or corporate trustee. Yeah, it, it, that causes more rifts with families when money's involved, even at small amounts, that oftentimes they need an intermediary and we'll recommend an estate planner to get involved so that they can kind of let those emotions be directed towards their mourning or other life events that are a lot more important than worried about how to, how to uh, um, file an estate tax return. Yeah, right, yeah. There's definitely the, the technical aspect of our jobs, right? Of, you know, for like Brent and I, it's, yeah, it's the tax aspect, very technical, very, you know, we're, we're looking straight at the books, but like you said, Ken, it's a lot of it is emotional. And we see that so much with estate planning and it's reminding the client what you came in here at the very first point. You know, when we first sat down and talked together, what were your goals? And like you're saying with Brett, think about pepper pastry. Like they, it's just constantly think about what your goals are and 
just try and keep that in mind through the ups and downs. That's going to kind of keep you to what your plan was, what your original goal was, and not let the emotional turmoil of the day kind of, you know, wreck the boat a little bit. I, I, I totally agree with you, Rachel. And I think it's funny because I just had this conversation with a client and his mother had recently passed after a long battle with Alzheimer's. And I said, hey, you know, his brother was the executor. And I said, hey, um, so did you guys hire an attorney to, to kind of settle the estate? And he said, yeah, actually, his wife had gone through this a few years ago. And it was so painful for the family. I think they were six to eight months after passing. And they still hadn't made any progress because, you know, the executor was her brother and he just didn't know what to do. And it's like, it's like swimming and fumbling in the dark, trying to find a lock and a key. And what I, to- what I told him I was glad to hear is that he had hired an attorney to navigate that process and to get it done in a timely manner so that the family can move on, you know, to their mourning phase, to their kind of joy and celebration of life phase, and then on, on with their lives. Yeah, I get that a lot, especially after somebody has passed away uh, and I get the phone call with somebody on the other line saying, you know, I, I just have no idea. I, I don't know. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do next. And I usually tell them, well, you're in luck. This is all I do. So I know exactly what we need to do. So and, and you know. I'm kind of in this business, not, not like your team is, but I would still hire an attorney day one and be and say, do it for me because I don't want to make any mistakes. And our time is too valuable. You know, I'd rather spend it with family. Yeah. By the way, if anybody's wondering what prep and pastry is, it's a restaurant. That's what that's a restaurant reference in uh, Tucson, Arizona. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Am I allowed to say that on your podcast? I love prep. Absolutely. Yeah, I love prep and pastry. <laughs> I, I hope they're doing just fine uh, yeah. under the yeah. circumstances. That, that would be one that if it went out of business, I'd be very sad. Yes. <laughs> uh, so a little bit on that topic, then maybe you want to polish this off by just giving us the, your thoughts on what sorts of things should people be looking for in a financial advisor? And then what sort I guess the inverse of that too, like what should they be looking out for in picking a financial advisor? Yeah, that's, it's a loaded question. And it's, it's hard because I always say to clients who are interviewing me and I, I encourage them to interview others. Um, too, because I think we're confident in our approach and process. And I feel like the only reason we would lose that opportunity is if they just found a better personality fit with another, another team, which is fine. There are more people retiring every day than any team or advisor can ever handle. And there's more people that need our help every day. And um, there's a huge tidal wave of, of retirees who need our help, need estate planning help, need CPAs help. And they should hire those experts because this world is just getting too complex to try to navigate it yourself. You just don't know what you don't know. But I always tell them there's bad advisors at good firms and there's good advisors at bad firms. So you never want to just say, well, this person's at firm XYZ and therefore they're good. The firms are very good at allowing advisors to create their business and practice as they see fit, as long as it's with with an ethical and compliance uh, guidance and guidelines. For example, Merrill Lynch, I'm the resident director of our office, so I have a management and compliance function. I need to make sure that my teams are acting in ethical and compliant ways and also being the conduit from you know, corporate and the communication of new uh, initiatives and technology and things like that. But I can tell you my office of 15 advisors, there's some advisors that are investment only, and that's what they do, and they charge the same fee as the person who is a comprehensive wealth management advisor and is doing a financial plan for every single client who will let them. 
and who is calling them in March to do their indirect Roth IRA strategies. They're, do, they're making sure they do the 65-day trust distributions. They're on top of it. They're kind of the quarterback for the entire relationship with the family. So you need to really interview quite a few advisors to see the solution set that they're providing. In my opinion, once again, I would run away or be very wary of someone who promises outperformance or says that you know over the last 10 years, they've annualized at 15, 20% returns. Um, to give you perspective, the stock market has compounded historically at roughly 10%, okay? Almost over every 20 year period, it's almost 10%. It's, it's amazing how it's reverted back to the mean return um, time and time again in history. So if you have someone telling you that they're conservative or they don't have risk and they're giving you a 10% return or more, I would be very careful with those statements. In fact, most of the, the prestigious financial advisors I work with and know, they don't even talk about returns. The returns need to be there. They'll show you how their portfolios have done. Um, but most importantly, the majority of the financial conversations based on the client's goals and how they can help them get there more efficiently. So I do think also that CPAs and estate planners are great resources to introduce you to several financial advisors. And I'd always ask them for at least three. We have to give three when we, when we refer out so that you can make an informed decision. And I would say, ask those people you trust for three. If you really like working with your estate planner, Brent, Rachel, whomever, I assume it's, I hope it's part of the, the team if they're listening to your podcast. Um, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> ask them. They'll know. They get to see a lot of financial plans, a lot of investment advisors, a lot of accountants. And it doesn't mean they're going to send you to the same person every time. They're going to find the right person for you. And sometimes that's just personality fit or stage of career or who that CPA targets and focuses on. So I would say that you need to interview each one. You need to understand their fee structure. They need to be very transparent and upfront about it. If they can't answer that question, that's a problem. In our industry, I would say a million dollars below, we don't charge more than 1%. Okay. We think it's a sin to do that. Some will charge more. You need to weigh whether that's worth it to you. A million dollars above, I think it starts to get a little bit more competitive. Okay. And I think that fee starts to drop. You can look up the average fees for our industry. There's been numerous articles in Barron's and Wall Street Journal and make sure your advisor is at worst at average, at best slightly below. And honestly, if you kind of press them on that matter, a lot of times they'll be able to go below that. Okay, so, so be that squeaky wheel a little bit respectfully, and I, I think you're going to get better outcomes. So keep the fees low. Make sure that you trust them and that you find faith in their process and their planning. And I think that's just how you, you should approach it. But once again, use your network. They know who's going to the tax study groups. They know who's going to the, um, in Arizona, it's the Southern Arizona State Planning Council. That estate planning council, by the way, is nationwide and part of the one in North County in San Diego. Those people who continue to learn and show up to those professional events, they're usually not doing bad things because they, they wouldn't show their face amongst their peers. Okay? Brent, Rachel, they'll know who those people are and they'll set you in the right direction. And if those three don't work out, trust me, they know three more. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And whenever I refer clients to other professionals, I, I almost always give them the same advice. And I almost always tell them the same thing of like, look, you need to go talk to all of these people because first of all, they're good. 
Otherwise, I wouldn't be giving you their name. But you need to find the right personality match that you think you can work with. Because if you, as you say, like if you don't have any confidence in them just on a personality level, period, it isn't going to work out. Like you should not use them. If you think they're annoying to even look at or speak to, like you should never use that person. You're going to be spending a lot more time with them than than you than you think. Excuse me, just got myself choked up. Uh, you know, you're going to be spending a lot, a lot more time with them than you think. And uh, so you have to have, you know, there has to be at least a, a personal level like between you and that person. So, yeah, I do. The, I, as I say, I do the same thing when I refer clients to other professionals. And of course, I only I'm only trying to refer them to people that I think are going to do an excellent job for them and that I'm fully confident in. Well, Ken, I really uh, I really appreciate your taking time to be with us. Where can people find you if they're trying to find you? So we do have an interstate team. My partner, Brian Upshaw, is in Tucson, Arizona. He's holding down that fort. We have a lot of clients there. I'm in San Diego. Uh, I moved there to take that directorship role. And then we actually added a new financial advisor, Christina Sevier, who's in Carmel, California. Beautiful Carmel. It's amazing up there. Yeah, uh, nice. So we've really just been blessed with having this kind of cross-city, um, cross-state team, which allows us to kind of constantly be available, but also provide a varied solution for different types of clients. So, you know, we have the female presence, we have kind of multi-generational thing going, and allows us to, to work with people who have $50 million and have that need, and young professionals who may be making a lot of money, but they only have fifty dollars to $100,000 to as part of their wealth currently but they still have huge financial planning needs. So if you want to find me, you can always just Google Ken Morris, Merrill Lynch. It should pop up with our team page and my personal profile. And of course you can always ask Brent um, or his team and they'll be able to get, get in contact. with. Yeah. Happy to do it. And I'll, I'll be sure to drop your uh, link to your page in the show notes. So anybody who's searching around there, they can find it uh, and go straight to Ken's page. And uh, if they have need for your services, they can reach out to you directly. Ken, again, appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brennan. I'm just going to say one more thing, though, because I, I can't leave without saying this. I have to really sing Brent's praises. And I'm not just saying this because he invited me to be on his podcast. <laughs> I get to see, just as I was saying, he gets to see all the financial advisors. I get to see a lot of estate planners, a lot of advice that clients get from estate planners. And hands down, Brent Nelson and his team are one of the best that I've ever worked with. I'm, I'm just honored when we have shared clients. I know they're in good hands. And thank you again for bringing me on the show. Well, you're, you're very welcome. And that's very kind of you to say. Thank you, Ken. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us reviews. Uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.